Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, there you go. I'm good, thank you, mate. Uh, nice to chat. Absolutely, and welcome all to a chapter of my life with author, historian, podcaster, and educator, Mr. Gary Sacker. Well, bless you, Captain Sacks, for that, Paul. Um, quite an introduction. I'm sure I can live up to it, but I'll do my very best, buddy. Well, you've got a new book coming out, and that's what we're going to be talking about in this episode of the chapter of my life. It's called yeah. Beautiful Bridesmaids Dressed in Orange, and I want to talk, I want to get hold of that book. Well, I've ordered it, so you're going to tell us Please. how other people can order it. You're going to tell us a little bit about the book, but first, a little bit about yourself and your back catalogue, because I'm a big fan of your work. Oh, bless you. Um, well, basically, I, I didn't start, I mean, I, I live in Spain, I've been over in there for the best part of three years. Um, sort of, I would say, semi retirement, but sort of freelance working. And I, uh, I write for a, uh, I write a column week column for a, for a newspaper over here. And, you know, as you probably mentioned, I work for um, these football times, write for their magazine, another couple of magazines as well, do a lot of podcasting. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I've got a few books out. I mean, this one will be my fourth book. Um, <clears throat> the third one was a novel, um, which came out last year. And I'm just in the process of writing a sequel to the novel which will be out um, probably around Christmas time. And then I've got another book coming out uh, next year, which is um, focused on, on the 2012 Champions League campaign and Chelsea's victory there. And I literally yesterday signed a contract uh, with the publishers for a, a book in 2023, which will be looking at the great Ajax teams of the 70s that won three successive European uh, Cups. So pretty busy boy at the moment. Oh, that last one really hit a note because Ajax were one of the great teams, won three back-to-back European Cups. We're going to be talking a little bit about Ajax a little bit later because this book, Beautiful Bridesmaids Dressed in Orange, where did the title come from and who designed the, the artwork for the cover? Right, Okay. well, basically, to cut a a very long story short, the title came from an article I wrote for a magazine a couple of years ago, and we're talking about teams that should have won the World Cup but didn't. And, you know, you're looking at the Hungarians in in the 50s, um, Brazil, uh, 82, uh, plus Danish Dynamite team of 86, and obviously the Dutch came into it. And it just sort of seemed to fit... um, because they were the, like, the eternal bridesmaids, and uh, the, uh, uh, the, I had the chance in uh, 1978 to go and uh, to go to Villa Park and watch um, Villa play Barcelona in a European game, yeah. and uh, and Cruyff was playing for um, Barcelona because last season with Barca, yeah. um, and he, he scored a wonderful goal there, and it just sort of stuck in my mind as well that. He was, he was beautiful, you know. He was the, the Dutch foot was beautiful. I mean, I, when I, when they, when they had their greatest period of, of uh, success, so sort of early seventies, mid seventies, um, <clears throat> I was I'd be so well, 
I'd be 14, 15 sort of thing. And I was just getting sort of, you want to find something, you want to understand something, that what's what's the best way of playing football? And to me, that Dutch team uh, personified it, you know. It wasn't a case of having a, a big guy at the back and, uh, you know, a weak, tricky winger, and there's, you know, a, a thunder in, in, in central midfield to win the ball. Everybody could play football. It was pick your best 11 footballers and then put them in a position because they can play all over the park. Um, so that was the beauty of it. And uh, actually, the design of the cover, um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll take a bit of credit myself. Um, the people at Pitch Publishing are brilliant. Um, basically, they put you in touch with one of their designers and you talk to the designer and give them an idea of what you want and they do it. And that image of the picture on the cover of Cruyff, I mean, he looks sort of crestfallen, but actually, they're walking off just, I think it's when they beat Uruguay, I can't remember, it was 74, but they'd won the game. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, just, it's a wonderful picture, and he's looking right into the camera, and it's almost like he's looking right into the reader's eyes, so I thought that was a perfect picture for the um, for the book. Now, the word orange, you've spelt it in the Dutch way, so the publication that you wrote the original article for, was it a Dutch publication? No, 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 no. It was um, it was for a magazine. It was a magazine called The Football Pink, which yeah. I think is only going as a digital um, thing now. This is going back, uh, oh, I don't know, I'd say four or five years now. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, the, the, the title wasn't used in that at all. It's just the, the bridesmaid idea came to me because they were the bridesmaids. Yeah. And, you know, I got this sort of thing that, you know, when you go to a wedding, the bride isn't always the most beautiful woman there. Sometimes the bridesmaids are prettier. And that was a thing that, you know, the Dutch lost World Cup finals twice, but they were the better team both times. The teams they lost to weren't the prettiest team. They were the prettiest team, the most beautiful team. And and I do like the way that you put the Dutch spelling of orange. It really works. It's superb. Going back to that game at Villa Park in 78, Johan absolutely bossed it. I think he come off after about 60 minutes, didn't he? And Villa got back into yeah. the game and drew it 2-2 in the first half. Correct. He actually took the ball uh, on his left foot. He come inside, come inside. He got a shot in, and he almost scored. It would have been an even better goal than the goal that he actually scored from. But Johan liked to do that, didn't he? He liked to drop deep. He liked to see the ball. He was the orchestrator. He was. He was definitely. The, you're absolutely right. And the, the, the day that game at the park, the pitch was terrible. Yeah, it was like wading through mud. But this guy, he, you know, I, I'm not sure there whether his feet actually touched the floor. Mm. He just got that balletic balance and movement about him, and uh, he only limped off towards the end. And, and actually, I, because I, I used to even walk Warsaw, so I had to catch, walk across, catch a bus from Birmingham into Warsaw, Warsaw, Warsaw to where I lived, and then walk to So it's quite a way to get home. So I missed both the Villa goals as it happened yeah. at the end, but. Um, I think they they got. I mean, it was two two. I think they lost two one in the return. Yes, it is. And Barca lost to uh, Anderlecht, who I think won the title that year. Um, but yeah, Cruyff. I mean, yeah, it did. And you know, the you say about about him dropping deep. That he did that when they scored the first goal of the seventy four World Cup final. He did. When he picked the ball up, the only Dutch player behind him was the goalkeeper. Yeah. And and that slalom room run, and uh, he had this brilliant capacity not to dribble past somebody. He almost swayed past them, you know, it's like an acceleration or a trip to the hips. There's no sort of stepovers or anything like that. It was that scything runs through the defence. He literally dropped his shoulder and he went and he was almost unstoppable. Now, the book, does it focus totally on the two World Cup finals that the Dutch got to or is it more about Dutch football in the 70s as a whole? 
which is a bit of both and then a bit more as well. Basically, yeah. what I, I take it from the beginning of Dutch football, going back to 1905, I think was the first time they played a game, which is against Belgium. Um, and there's a guy called Eddie De Neva who scored. They, they, they drew 1-1 in, and they played extra time and won 4-1 after extra time. This guy's got all four goals really? in the first international they played. And it's interesting, they played, uh, and it wasn't until they played England a few years later that they actually wore the orange shirt. They used to wear white with a red and blue sash across it. And, like, and it's, it's a kit they've worn as a change kit a couple of times. Um, but yeah, so it works away right from that through. But the main body of the book is basically the 74 World Cup, the 76 European Championships, and the 78 World Cup. And then I take it onwards and we look at the 1988 when they won the European Championship and straight up to 2010 when they lost the World Cup final. They became the only team in history to, to lose three World Cup finals. I mean, imagine the heartbreak of that. And they didn't get to many World Cup finals before 74, because 38 was the only time that they qualified. And until the 50s, the mid-50s, the Dutch game was, was amateur, wasn't it? It was, and even after that, it was it was professionally in name only. For example, when Cruyff um, joined Ajax, and even when he was playing for his, his first few international games, um, the money that the, the club were paying them, although they were professional, was insufficient to survive on. So yeah. Cruyff used to start, sell um, stand on street corners selling a magazine uh, to eke out his, his sort of uh, wage. And I think, think Pete Kaiser used to run tobacconist. Um, a guy called the guy, uh, the guy who scored the equalising goal in '78 for Dirk Naninka, he was a florist. I mean, even in 1978, the players having yeah. But in, when they qualified uh, in '74, um, it was the first time they qualified since 1938. And after 19 after 1978, they didn't qualify again until 1992. It is quite That's incredible, a, isn't it? Really, because that's amazing. I mean, they they beat Germany the first time that they they beat Germany. Uh, the great English coach Jimmy Hogan was uh, was the orchestrator of that win as well. So they'd always had that little bit of an English feel about them, even back in the early 1900s, haven't they? Well, since from ni- in 1908, the guy who uh, uh, coached in the first few years, a guy called Keith Van Huffel, mm-hmm. um left, and from that time until just after the Second World War. There were, I think, there were eight or nine coaches of the Dutch national team, yeah. and they were all British. They were all British. Uh, so there was a massive British influence, and um, the guy called uh, Bob Glenn Denning uh, was managing them up until this, the Second World War, and he still holds the record for the most games in a single. Because a lot of it happens quite often in, in Dutch football, where a manager will go back and again and again and again. Like for instance, yeah. Mickles. Was many those coaches and I think on four or five different occasions. But Glenn Denning holds, holds the record for the most um, consecutive uh, games. So he's the coach of the Dutch, Dutch national team. But there is, there's always been a strong English uh, influence in, in Dutch football because of the uh, the coach. And you mentioned Jimmy Hogan. That was the only game he coached them for. Yeah. Yeah. And he he'd gone to work for a club called FC Dordrecht in in Holland, and uh, he, he got co-opted to coach there. And they asked him back afterwards if we can go back. Strange. Now, in '74, when they qualified for that World Cup finals, um, I was about eight or nine. So it was yep. the first real World Cup finals that I was looking at as a kid. They almost never qualified because there was that game against Belgium. And to be fair, yeah. I mean, even VAR probably would have given that goal for the Belgians, wouldn't it? 
I would definitely have given that goal for Belgium because um, when, when it was a late free kick. I mean, basically, all the Dutch needed was a draw yeah. in the final game. I think it was at the, the, the Dekaip. It might be at the Olympisch. I think it was at the Dekaip. Uh, and uh, Belgium uh, just hadn't really threatened to score all the way through and had a free kick in the last minute of the game. And I think it was Van Himst who curled the ball across. And Pete Shrivers was in goal for the Dutch and he, the curl of the ball defeat, just defeated him. Mm-hmm. And Van Hayden came on the back post and took it away. And the Dutch had this, had just started this, um, what is called a gallop defence. So everybody, as soon as the ball was being addressed, the guys would rush out and try to catch everybody offside. Yeah. The replays of this guy showed there was at least three players, three of the players played him onside. And, you know, I mean, if the linesman on the far side, who I think was on gear, if my memory serves me correctly, gave the offside decision and the referee just obviously gave it but VAR would have definitely said it was a goal and we would have never known the great Dutch football of the 70s so you know, I'm glad he missed it really I mean I do an awful lot of podcasts like, like you do and um, yeah, yeah. You know, he, he, football is so much down to fine margins and as you, as you alluded to there had that goal been given we would have never seen the total football no. of the Dutch team no. did the total football come from obviously come from uh, Rhinus uh, Michaels but he was a, a, a disciple, really, of, of Jimmy Hogan and the Hungarian team in the 50s because they played a game when they taught us how to play football when they come over to, to Wembley in 53 yeah. and back in Budapest in 54. So they were, they were total football players as well, wasn't they? The Dutch were very Absolutely. similar to the, to the Hungarians. There's a guy called Rappel who was coached the great Austrian team, the the team, um, in the 30s, and uh, and that was perhaps the first total football team. Yeah. And, they were, and they played um, a, a sweep of Catenaccio Italian defensive uh, formations comes because it's often called the, the Austrian Bolt. Yeah. Because Catenaccio means Bolt. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of British um, coaches. Um, Jack Reynolds, for example, um, coached Ajax, and there again took that same thing forward. And Mickles. Um, it was a former Ajax player, um, had an interesting career, international career. Strangely enough, and if, you, if, 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 had, if the KNVB, the Dutch FA, had sort of continued his uh, playing career in, in sort of the Orange as, uh, as significant, he played eight games and lost them all. Lost every game he played as an international. Um, uh, I would he would never got the job, but uh, he was a sort of bang ordinary striker. He scored a few goals, but not great. And he left uh, when he retired. He became a PE teacher and worked at a sports academy. And uh, a guy called Vic Buckingham, another English coach, he was yeah. actually an adherent of the, uh, that sort of movement football. And he gave, was a guy who gave Cruyff his, um, his debut um, and called him a useful kid, wonderful quality, useful kid, any just. Um, but he, just got, he got the sack and uh, uh, um, Nichols moved in and they were near the bottom of the league. And the first game they played, I think they won something like 8-3 or 9-3. Um, there was about eight games left this season and they didn't win that many I think they won three drew three and lost the rest but they survived and basically from there they, they took off the following year they, they won the title and, and away they went and you know if, 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 if Michaels was um, the Pope you couldn't have a better sort of adherent to, the, to, the, uh, to his edict than Cruyff because um, he was just he became an arch disciple of the total football. But the total, it's interesting about the total football for the, in, in 1974. Um, injuries and strange confluence, strange um, occurrences robbed the Dutch of who, who should have been the goalkeeper and the two yeah. centre-backs. 
Um, basically, uh, the, the two centre-backs probably would have been uh, Barry Holshoff and uh, Ryan, uh, Ryan Israel of Feyenoord. Um, but both had got injured. Uh, Mickles took uh, Ryan Israel anyway. He only played him as a sub a few times, but only for short periods. Um, but Barry Holshoff, who was probably the... And um, he played 13 games as a centre half for the Dutch, and he scored six goals. Yeah. And the team never got beaten. I mean, that's the sort of player he was. So they, those were both, both injured. Um, the goalkeeper, a guy called Jan van Beveren, who was playing for PSV Eindhoven, and he got injured uh, towards the a few months before the World Cup. And uh, he had an uneasy relationship with Mikkels the way through. And uh, when the, the, the sort of pre-squad gathered, uh, Mikkels had arranged a game with Hanover, um, just, just a you know warm game, as it were. And they wanted Van Beveren to play and to prove his fitness. And this, Van Beveren was about 27, 28 at the time. So, look, you know, I'm experienced goalkeeper. I know I'm fit. I don't want to risk, you know, do damaging the injury. Uh, so I'll play 45 minutes if you really want me to, but I don't want to. Mikkel said, no, if you don't play, you're not coming. So he dropped him. So basically, they had the three, the two centre-backs and the goalkeeper missing. And they chose, instead of um, Van Beveren, who was one of the top goalkeepers in Europe, Jan Youngblood. Yep. Now, Jan, Jan Youngblood had played one game for the Dutch 12 years before. Yeah. That game had lasted precisely five minutes. He came on as a substitute and conceded a goal in five minutes. Now that was that was the but the the, the sort of rationale was if you're going to play this rush, this galloping out defence, he was better with his feet. So that was the logic. Um, and in, instead of playing, uh, so they couldn't play the, the first choice centre backs. And this is where the total football kicked in. Um, he put, he, he's chosen Nichols chose uh, Reisbergen, who was a, actually a, set, a fullback to play centre-back and he pulled Harry Hahn who was a midfield player back into the back four who played as like a sweeper in front of Reisberg and rather behind him and that's it was almost you can't not play football when you've got a centre-half like Harry Hahn yeah. and the goalkeeper who's, who's good with his feet and this guy who I spoke to a Dutch uh, celebrated journalist called Jan Hohen de Boyne and uh, he said that the Dutch uh, total football in that World Cup was almost by accident. Um, the taking on of the, the Ajax sort of and the final way of playing perhaps wouldn't have happened if it had been picked, able to pick the first choice goalkeeper and two centre backs. It's quite incredible, isn't it, really? How Imagine. You Imagine. arrive at situations with different scenarios. But Yang Youngblood, I remember as a kid, I remember he was the first goalkeeper I've ever seen head the ball. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, I got a quote in the book from Fulman um, uh, Hammigan, who uh, legendary player, legendary player, and uh, he says, you know, that uh, he was a goalkeeper. He wasn't anywhere near the top of goalkeeper, mm. but he enjoyed playing as a, as a footballer, as a outfield yeah. player. Yeah. Um, but strangely enough, you know, it, it, as it, as the tournament turned out. He was never really called on to play that sweeper-keeper thing, other than I think once or twice came out and hacked the ball clear, but anybody could do that. It wasn't a case of getting foot on the ball and picking a pass out. It never really happened. But, you know, as you say, five margins, then that's how those things work out sometimes. Now, you mentioned and referenced uh, uh, Wim van Hannigan, one of the all-time greats. Is it fair to say that it wasn't the greatest of World Cups for him? Because, again... 
possibly because I was too young and I've I've looked at Van Hannigan recently. What an absolute legend of a player. Wands yeah, yeah. as feet. But you look at that, I mean, I remember very well, obviously, Johan Cruyff, Johnny Rep, uh, Robbie Renson, bring, Johan Nyskins, remember Harry Hart, uh, Hart, Rudy Kroll. Most of them as a kid were household names to me as a young boy. Yeah. But Van Hannigan's, yeah. for some reason, wasn't. Yeah. Well, I guess, that, you know, a lot of the, it's strange that if, if you look at the squad that yeah. went to the 74 World Cup, there were more Feyenoord players than Ajax players. Yeah. But, but, but more Ajax players played for more time than the Feyenoord players. Mm-hmm. Van Hannigan being the exception who played, he played in every game. But he was almost like the quiet man in midfield. He was yeah. like the guy who let, let Cruyff play, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, uh, the passage in the book where compare the Dutch way of playing to like a Cobra. It's that sort of dance and swaying thing and before they strike very quickly. Yeah. Well, Van Hannigan hadn't got that pace. In fact, this, I've got to quote the book where he says, whenever I scored a goal, I never tried for it in a way because my teammates always catch me, I can't run. Um, so he was more of a sort of that sort of solid player, but an exceptional talent. And, uh, you know, Feyenoord fans will tell you the best player in Dutch history is in Cruyff, it's Van Hannigan. And it's, it's not a bad argument in fairness. And a lot of people also, Dutch people, would put Van Hannigan up there with Johan Cruyff as a Dutch master, wouldn't they? Oh, definitely so. And interestingly, there was a period where, where Mikkels had, had just gone to, to Ajax, where the Ajax um, chairman or press club president said, oh, I want, I'm going to sign Van Hannigan for you. We're playing at a club called, I think it's playing at Telstar, which is in uh, Rotterdam um, at the time. And, um, and basically Mikkels said, no, I don't want him. I know, I know about him, but he's not going to suit my pattern of play. You know, and thereby hangs a tail. You know, if he'd assigned Van Hannigan, whether he was just being stroppy and saying, oh, I'll pick my own players. But he did, the deal didn't go through, and a few months later, he, he went to Feyenoord. Uh, but imagine having, you know, Van Hannigan and, uh, and, and Cruyff in, in your, your club team as well. So, you know. So again, 1970, Feyenoord won the European Cup against Celtic. They did. And then uh, Ajax won it back-to-back, 71, 72, 73. They That's dominated, correct. dominated European at club football, but a just couldn't kick it over the line at international level in 74 and 78. But that 74 World Cup finals, I remember the game, uh, Argentina, wasn't it, 4-0, oh, yeah. where Johan oh, pulled yeah. the ball out of the sky. And, oh. and You're looking at that as a kid. The Cruyff turn against Sweden. You're going, how did you do that? The only time I'd seen anything like that on the TV screens was, uh, was on a magic show. Yeah. I expect you say that because I've got some... Uh... The guy who, the Swedish guy who was defending against Cruyff in that game, uh, was a guy called Olsen. Um, I can't remember his first name, but he was called Olsen. Anyway, I got some quotes from him. And he said that, you know, um, I couldn't believe it, but, you know, I felt actually honoured to be to be the dupe in a magic show. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, and it's probably one of the most watched things, moves in football. But if anybody hasn't watched it, watch it on YouTube, guys, because this guy gets sent so far the wrong way that not only do you have to buy a ticket to get back in the stadium, you have to get a taxi to get back there first. It was unbelievable. And again, it was, mate, yeah. only Johan Cruyff in those days could do something like that. And it was it was poetic as well, was it? He had a balance oh, yeah. and a grace, and he just didn't just do it. You could put that to music. I do a lot of uh, podcasts with Alan Hudson. And uh, he, 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 he book, yeah. um, Working Man's Ballet, which Tony Waddington yep. gave the title. 
and you could put that Dutch team to music. They were the working yeah. man's ballet, wasn't they? Oh, they were. And you mentioned the, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad we sort of were on the same wavelength, but you mentioned the goal against Argentina. I mean, it, it, it's difficult to, to, to combine poetry and, and athletic movement at the same time, but that goal did it. And yeah. there's, a, there's a, I don't remember who it was, but somebody put um, the um, uh, um, James Taylor song, okay. something in the way he, he moves. Yeah. To, to quote, and I'll tell you what, it just, it, it's perfect. It's perfect. It certainly is. Also, as well, what was perfect was um, the performance against Brazil. Brazil champions. Brazil tried to kick the Dutch. To be fair, they did kick the Dutch off the park in, in that game. But the Dutch just rose to it. And that is arguably one of the most classic World Cup games of all time. And they put Brazil to the sword 2-0. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And Brazilian coach... Um, in 1974, um, was determined in '66. Obviously, Pele had been kicked out, kicked out yeah. of the tournament in the World Cup in England. Um, was determined not to be bullied out of the out of the games. So they decided to sort of get these retaliation first, and they they turned into a real sullen street fighter of a team, yeah. brutish, you know. And you know, I mean, I've got some quotes from Pele and Carlos Alberto. In the book that say you know they're embarrassed. I won't say embarrassed, but uh, it, it was sad to watch Brazil play that way. And I think the one redeeming factor is they weren't wearing the yellow shirts; they were all blue that game. But yes. um, they'd, they'd been they'd been poor all the way through. In fact, you know it, it's they were only lucky they were lucky by one goal that uh, they got through ahead of Scotland. Um, otherwise, Scotland you know Scotland would have, would have qualified. And they had to score one more goal against Zaire, then they went two 0 but um, in that game, um, and then again, I've got a, um, a young, young uh, Herman of Bruyne. Uh, he said that, you know, the Dutch knew how to, how to look after themselves as well. These are the guys that in case hard in European football. Um, they'd played lots of teams that, that had tried to kick them off the park. And, you know, they, they, they could sort of give it out as well. But by far the... Um, the most aggressive part were um, the Brazilians. I've got, I've got a, um, I spoke to Graham Hunter, um, who was kind enough to give me some uh, an interview about the book, and it, <laughs> I got some quotes from him in there, and he's, he's incandescent rage about how the Britons um, basically betrayed their um, their uh, tradition and playing playing as they did, which was you know terrible. And you know, if ever beauty slayed the beast, that was a day. Absolutely. And there was another game in the 70s. I think it was 74 in the European Cup when Atletico Madrid played against Celtic and, and, and Madrid absolutely kicked Celtic off the park. And that game reminded me of, of the Brazil and uh, and Holland yeah. game as a kid. Yeah. I also remember Johan Cruyff when he scored the second goal and when he just booted the ball back into the net as, as the rebound and wheeled away. That was just typical Cruyff. He had just such balance. Anybody else would have fallen over there, but not Johan. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 you said the second goal against Argentina. Yeah, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah, that, I mean, that second goal against Brazil. Nayskin scored the first Brazil, one. Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. But, you know, when he scored oh, yeah. that goal, and he's, he's yeah, wheeling yeah, away yeah. and he's just kicked it back in the net. It's like, That's right. game over. That's right. Well, it was, and, you know, and of course you get at the end when uh, Pereira, the, uh, the Brazilian defender. Oh, he was I mean, yeah, oh, you, you, know, you know, this people say, and, and, and you know... And, uh, Ex-footballers will sort of rise this, but say, "Oh, that was a bad challenge." But it wasn't a bad challenge. He just walked over and kicked you. That's not a challenge at all. 
And uh, Pereira just basically walked up to Niskin's, a ball probably three metres away, and just kicked him up in the air and, you know, and got sent off and absolutely wanted to fight everybody in the stadium, apparently. But, uh, yeah, the Brazil were really disappointed. Sorry, but it was justice when the Dutch beat them. It wasn't justice, however, on World Cup final day. That was delayed, wasn't it? The final was delayed because of the um, the, the corner flags wasn't in place, wasn't it? You, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and uh, again, Jack, Jack Taylor, local yeah. guy, yeah. Uh, was refereeing, and um, apparently, and I, I found a, a, a call from him that he remembered years ago when he was refereeing junior football that. Um, it started a game, and one of the, one of the, the must be the fathers, the, one of the players, called him up. So you got to stop the game, this boy, because there's no corner flags. Yeah. And he said, ever since that day, he always checked the corner flags, and they'd been removed for the uh, the sort of marching band display that they had before the World Cup. And so there was Jack Taylor walking around putting corner flags back in. So yeah, that's a great point, mate. You're absolutely right. That, that's uh, that's true. Well, that's strange. What, what what happened next? Questions, isn't it? And it was also the first penalty that was awarded in the uh, World Cup final, wasn't it? For Johan yeah, Nijskins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Nijskins was was massively proficient from uh, from twelve yards and against um, Bulgaria, yeah, I think it was. Oh, sorry, Bulgaria. You're right. Yeah, Bulgaria, Bulgaria. scored. He, 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 um, he scored. They made him take it again, and he just buried it again and put another one away afterwards. But strange enough, the the, the most proficient penalty taker in the team wasn't Naiskins, it was Rob Brensonbrink. And Rob Brensonbrink was playing for um, An- uh, Anderlecht yep. at the time. And after training at, at Anderlecht, he'd take the goalkeeper um, to practice penalties and he'd tell the goalkeeper yeah. where he was going to put the ball and still beat him. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and, and apparently and in 78, he, he's, he's, he routed three or four penalties. In the in the '78 World Cup, but yeah, I mean, it was the the, the first uh, the first World Cup final penalty, and the first time a German player touched the ball was when set my fish out of the onion bag. It was quite incredible. I was watching recently um, an interview with uh, Johan Neiskins, and he says, "I usually put it to the goalkeeper's right, and on my run, right. I changed my mind and I tried to hit it in the other corner, but I got my feet tangled up a little bit, and I didn't get a true connection. The dust." Uh, you know, the chalk come up and it went straight down the middle and if, if Seb would have stayed there, he would have saved it. It would have hit him straight in the face, yeah. Exactly, I mean, actually, yeah. I've got yeah, the picture of, of Nyskin's penalty from behind the goal is actually on the back cover of the book. Um, mm-hmm. And the ball, you see, you see the, the pair he strikes it with. I mean, if he'd had it, it might, might have took him in the back of the net with him. I mean, um, he could eat a ball, couldn't he? Oh, he could, yeah, just a little bit. There's, a, there's another interesting thing about the 74 World Cup, of course, when uh, when the Germans equalised the penalty, yeah. um, um, uh went down for the penalty. Um, they had this, this contentious point because, uh, I mean, I've seen, I've watched this many times over and it, and it doesn't seem that uh, Janssen, the uh, defender, who went managed Celtic for a while afterwards, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, doesn't actually touch him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he goes down and there's a German word it's called Schwalbe which actually means swallow right. but it means swallow dive yeah? right. and from that day the word sw- uh, Schwalbe as was co-opted into the Dutch language which basically means um, anything underhand particularly in sports so you know any kind of cheating becomes a Schwalbe and mm-hmm. it's because of that moment because they wasn't, or certainly Van Hannigan wasn't a great fan of the Germans, was he? Uh, well, he lost, he lost two brothers in yeah, the yeah. Uh, 
in the uh, um, bombing campaign, the Second mm. World War. And it was a big thing. I mean, we're talking 1974, so we're only talking uh, less than 30 years after yeah. the end of the Second World War. And there was a lot of um, anger against the Germans. And, uh, and there again, I've got lots of quotes in the book. Um, Cruyff says it. Um, uh, Van Hanmegen says it. Johnny Ripp says it. They didn't want to beat the Germans. Yeah. They wanted to humiliate them. Yeah. They wanted to, and it almost it almost came to the point where in that game they they got ahead, they were ahead and for twenty five minutes or so they played the most glorious football. And you mentioned about Cruyff being you know in the orchestra. He was a conductor of the orchestra and they were playing some mighty fine music. Yeah. Um, they, they humiliated the Germans for that time, but they forgot to score the second goal. That is the crucial thing. You've got to kill yeah. teams off. Kill when, the game off. Yeah, when off. you're in your purple patch. I've got to say again, your um, these football times. I love the uh, the the Anderlecht. We did m- uh, mention uh, Van Alst earlier, and that yes, Anderlecht program p- podcast that you guys put together, absolutely fantastic. And I'm I'm loving sure. these football times. I'm loving the lob. I'm loving all the podcasts. So intelligent listening educating listening the snake man we have to talk about the snake man one of the great players in fact what he said to me paul when we played against bruges in the uh, the cup winners cup robbie renson brink tore us one he tortured us he was just different class what a player yeah but yeah, yeah, and you know there again on those, these little things do do, do great do great occasions turn. Yeah. In the Brazil game, um, he, he struck a hamstring, and I mean it was only three or four days before the final, and there was no chance of him playing. Um, but then there's, there's, there's a rumor that's, that's I deal with in the book that he got a boot deal that um, meant that he had to play the final, otherwise he wouldn't collect the money and he said afterwards this nobody would do that for a few thousand guilders it's ridiculous but he it was it clearly wasn't pretty and he played until half time yeah. they took him off and uh van der kirkhoff came on but yeah outstanding player and Rensenbrink being fit might have made all that difference in that final because the guy wasn't fit absolutely but i mean pete kaiser again another dutch legend he only played the one game didn't he in that yep. world cup yeah, he played well. There again, there's politics and football in, 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 in the Dutch. Well, basically, um, Cruyff had been captain, inherited the captaincy of Ajax from uh, Kaiser, and he, he lifted the European Cup in 1973 when he played Juve. Yeah. He, he's actually wearing a Juve shirt because it's swap shirts. Um, but in for the following season. Um, uh, basically, Stefan Kovacs, who was the manager who'd, who'd taken over from Mikkels yeah. for the second, for the second, third uh, uh, European Cup um, campaigns, uh, contract was up, and he'd gone to manage the French national team. And Ajax employed a guy called George Noble. It was crazy. I mean, it appears to be a crazy decision. He'd come from MVD Maastricht before a mid-table team, and what might the guy who I mentioned earlier, uh, Jan Herman, described as a small-town coach. Yeah. We're talking moving to the European Championship, yeah. and basically, there's a, there's, there's a tradition that each each season they'd elect a captain. And Cruyff always assumed that he would just be on the nod, but when it was come to the election, somebody nominated uh, Pete Kaiser instead, and Kaiser won the vote. And t- rumor has it that after the vote, he went to, uh, Cruyff went up to his room, phoned his father, Mark, his uh, curver, and said, um, "You've got to get me out of here." Yeah. 
and that's what triggered the move to Barcelona. Yeah. And there was always this friction between Kaiser and and Cruyff. And basically, in the, in the World Cup, although Kaiser was a strong um, option to play, uh, Mikkels decided it was best not to play him alongside Cruyff, but changed his mind for the Sweden game. It's the only game that the Dutch didn't win and the only game they didn't score in, although it will be remembered massively for that uh, for the Cruyff turn, of course. Yeah, it's quite incredible because I'm sure I read somewhere that, that Cruyff and his all-time team did pick Pete Kaiser. You're absolutely right. He picked two players yeah. uh, out, of the, out of the AX team. One was Rudy Kroll and the other was Pete Kaiser. So, you know, although perhaps they, there was a personal relationship that didn't work as well as Pete could have done over time, um, obviously the respect was still there. And I think that's true of a lot of Dutch football, certainly around the area, because, you know, I mean, it's it's often said that if you want to win a tournament, you've got to have a united group. The Dutch were never that. Yeah. And there was always strife. Um, and even when they won in 88, there was still strife in the camp. Um, you know, it's almost like they have to spark off this thing to to, to become angry enough to play well. Um, but yeah, there was ructions between, and you know, before the tournament and uh, in the tournament as well. And then, of course, in 1978, when they um, they went to the next World Cup finals, they went without Johan Cruyff. Now, there was speculation that he was caught in an uncompromising position with a number of other Dutch players, but there was also a political scenario because it was the hunter or the junta that run Argentina and Johan Cruyff um, didn't want to go because of that. Did you discover what the real reason for Cruyff not going was? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got the real reason he says is the real reason and there's lots of evidence to suggest it was the case. Yeah. Basically, um, in 1977, I think it must have been, um, he was at Barcelona and he was at home with his wife and family and somebody knocked on the door and he was expecting delivery from a courier, yep. opened the door and it was somebody with a gun trying to basically kidnap him. Right. And basically his wife escaped and raised the alarm and the guy ran off and they, they sort of they escaped. But basically from that point he says he was not going to leave his family behind. Mm. Um, but he never revealed it for the real reason for many years after the, 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 his children were old enough to understand. Uh, but but um, Ernst Happel, uh, who was the um, coach by then, alongside a guy called Jan Fleitkreis, um, tried to persuade Cruyff to, to go in this campaign in, 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 the, in Holland. But the police, the, the Spanish police had told Cruyff not to reveal the reason because if he said it, some, some idiots would get an idea of trying the same thing so he had to say, no, I just don't want to go. But, but that kind of was a real reason. Yeah, wasn't there another scenario where the Pope got kidnapped as well in Spain? Um, I don't know. Is no. the Not that I can remember. I'm, yeah. I'm, you might be right, but not that I can remember. I don't know, mate. I don't know. I mean, the, the politics of Argentina was a big thing as well at the time, yeah. of course, which you mentioned. Oof, and there was a yeah, there was a campaign um, in Holland run by two, originally started by two comedians, one who was a friend of a, a guy in Amnesty and Anthony told him about this, and a big campaign for the Dutch not to go. Mm. Um, but basically the Dutch government, although individual members sort of supported it, the Dutch government as a, as a whole wouldn't get you involved and said it's up to the, F, the Dutch FA, and the Dutch FA said, well, you know, we'll look at it next time, but, you know, I don't think it's that bad. And they actually sent a doctor sent the team doctor to Buenos Aires to, to look at the facilities. Now, it's, it's the height of, of, of being naive if you think the military junta is going to show this doctor around all the torture cells. 
you know, and he'd come back and said, well, yeah, everything looks fine. So, of course, they went. But uh, there was a big Ferrari for a time um, there. And, uh, yeah, some some players were a bit reluctant. And yet a lot of them, and I've got uh, sort of interviews with some of the players there that said that um, we weren't aware of what was going on until afterwards. And, you know, perhaps that's true. Um, but, you know, to, to have an opportunity to go and play for your country in a World Cup, I don't know, it's, it's a brave man that turns it down for a political gesture that probably won't change anything anyway. Absolutely, and rather than going and having a look there, they probably would have had better off having divers and looking at the bottom of the river plate. <laughs> Good point, yeah. Good point, yeah. Dead right. Yeah. But what a World Cup when it actually happened in Argentina, the ticker tape World Cup. It was one of the most fantastic World Cups visually, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so many, so many sorts of massively passionate things going on there. And um, I've got, we did an a, a interview with Abraham Klein, the, the referee who, uh, he refereed the, well, he was, he, he refereed the Argentina, Argentina, um, Italy game. Yeah. Uh, which was the third, third game of the Argentine qualifying group. Yeah. They'd won the, yeah, they'd won the, the first two games. And, Basically, uh, France, France and Europe and Hungary, I think, and the, the players sent off some, some dodgy decisions given their favour, and all the generals are sitting there. And Abraham Klein basically wasn't intimidated, and he got some rave reviews about how he refereed. And then he refereed the Germany Austria game, and he, apparently he was odds on to referee the final. Mm-hmm. Um, but because the, um, and there again, there's no proof of this, but it's widely accepted to be the case. And Abraham certainly thought it was the case when I spoke to him. Um, that it was the Argentines putting pressure on FIFA to say they don't want this guy refereeing because he was biased against them. When in fact he wasn't, he was just being legitimate straight down the centre. And instead, it went the game. The game went to an Italian called Ganella, who was a, you know, quite an experienced referee. But um, if you're a referee and you know. You're in that position in the World Cup final because one team put you there. It puts an awful lot of pressure on you to be sort of return the flag, as it were. And a lot of people, and I've got some reports in the book that say that say how you know um, you'd lost control of the game very early, and a lot of 50-50 decisions were going to the to the Argentines, and you can't prove it. There's a lot of pressure. And Rick Kroll tells a story that um, when they went to the final, the coach that took the hotel from the hotel to the to the um, um, monumental, the uh, the stadium where the World Cup final was held, um, was sort of lost on the way and ended up in this small village where they were basically bombarded for 20 minutes by youths with sticks and stones banging on the windows, shouting Argentina before they could even escape from there. So there's a lot of it was a lot of sort of shenanigans going on. There's, there's other things I mentioned in the book as well, but as you mentioned, the the the, the, the ticker tape at the at the the, at the World Cup final of that's a quote from Dirk Ninka, who played in the Kansas Sub and scored the equaliser. And he said that we were standing there looking at him. He said there must have been 500 Dutch fans, but that's probably an exaggeration. They probably weren't even that many. Yeah. But that, that game, I remember, whereas they had to stop the game um, in, in 74 for no corner flags, they almost had to stop the game to just sweep all the ticker tape off it. Because true, yeah, it was just yeah. incredible. But didn't that yeah. game it was delayed as well? Didn't, was it Rennie van der Kerkhoff had a plaster cast on his arm? Well, yeah, well, there were two things. Basically, um, they didn't come out for a while after Dutch came out. And um, van der Kerkhoff, in the first game against Iran, uh, when he was tackled and when they won the penalty, he fell on his wrist. 
and basically he's had this, this um, lightweight um, cast on his wrist all through every game throughout the rest of the tournament and he's been approved by FIFA. But when they came to the final, basically, the Argentines, as well as basic, uh, they just came out for about five minutes before the Argentines even appeared and all the crowd were baying at them and he was really under pressure. I mean, there you are, sort of 15, 16 players there and there's, I don't know, 70, 80, 90,000 people curdling for board after you. And then the, 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 they came out and then there was a kerfuffle about the... Um, the, uh, the cast and the, uh, Kroll says Kroll was captain at the time and he said he came to the point where we're saying okay if he can't play we're walking off and that was that broke the, broke the back of it then they realised it was time to put a football game to break it but, but for all the shenanigans of, of Argentina and one of the biggest shenanigans and, and strokes arguably that was pulled was the uh, 6-0 demolition of, of Peru but, but, and, oh. Didn't they have a goalkeeper that was born in Argentina as well? They did have a goalkeeper. Yeah, they did. I mean, there again, this is, I've got a guy who I interviewed for a book um, who is uh, uh, Dr. Pete Watson, who's a, a lecturer on South American affairs and an expert on South American football. And he sort of gave me a lot of information regarding that, that game. And there was a lot of uh, conjecture because uh, Peru, Peru was also run by a military junta at the yeah. time. And there's a lot of talk about lines of credit being open and shipments of grain being transferred across. And basically, Peru had lost the because it, it didn't go into semi-finals. It was two lots of two lots of groups. Yeah. So it was a concluding group game, and Peru had lost the other two games, so they couldn't qualify anyway. Yeah. Uh, Hector Chompitas, who was the captain of of Peru um, at the time, after being interviewed afterwards, said that you know, look, we'd never got this far of tournament before. We're tired. We'd done as much as we could. We were happy with what we've done blah 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 now I don't know and Peter uh, Pete Watson Dr. Pete Watson uh, pointed me out to a guy a Peruvian player who didn't play in Argentina afterwards and who said look of course we, you know, we were bribed and then, but afterwards he denied it and then he said it was true he said it wasn't true but years afterwards there was a, a Peruvian senator who, um, who apparently gave evidence confirming that it was uh, the game had been fixed and it was up well, um, picked up by a Dutch newspaper called The Telegraph and FIFA said they're going to launch an inquiry and all of a sudden nothing happened <laughs> and nobody was surprised yeah so corruption in football has always gone on it always Anything. will go on it's just the way that things happen but let's take nothing away from Argentina because they were fantastic hosts they were great winners as well. They played some great football and with uh, Ardiles in midfield and Tarantini at the back and Leopoldo Luque, bless him, who sadly passed away recently. And yeah. the great Mario Kempes. Yeah, they had some, yeah. again, household names. Rennie Houseman was another one. They had some great Rennie players, Houseman. didn't they? You know, so yeah. it, it, it was a great World the, Cup. The frustrating thing, you know, if you're an Argentine and, you know, does that is that is that tournament tainted because of what happened? And it is to some extent. Mm. And they may well have they may well have been able to win it without all the shenanigans that went on. Yeah. But you know, it's it's it, there's always going to be that sort of asterisk over it, you know. And uh, the other thing I mentioned about the, the Italian uh, Ganelli, because there's a lot of Argentinians who are of Italian descent. Like Tarantini is an Italian name. <laughs> but Tony. Is an Italian name, yeah. you know. There's a lot of Argentines with, with uh, Italian um, descent as well. So yeah, there you go. But they were the team, the national team, really, 
of the decade. Because although West Germany, and it was West Germany back in 74, and they were a damn good team as well. Bayern Munich, of course, won three back-to-back European Cups after the great Ajax team. And Argentina were great winners as well. But the 70s, for me, will always be remembered for the team in orange. And as you eloquently put, the uh, just beautiful bridesmaids that played the beautiful game so well. I couldn't agree more, Paul. I mean, yeah, I mean, as I say, I was at the age I was, I was looking for a team to sort of honour. You know, and it's not a, I mean, I'm, I'm a Chelsea fan, yeah, know, for, for my sins. Um, but, you know, it's it, the Dutch football for me is a love affair that it's, it's a love affair with beauty. It's a thing that you look and think, wow, just look at that. You know, it's like a work of art, it's beautiful. And, you know, as you say, the 70s for me have always been painted with the colour orange. And and it also really, you look at the Dutch culture, that it was just exploding as well, wasn't it, through that, you know, through the 60s, and, you know, you got the lovely, the, the clogs and the windmills and the avant-garde and art and yeah. Amsterdam, and famously, John Lennon had the loving, didn't he, in Amsterdam? It, like, it was a lot of things going on in Holland. <laughs> It was. It was a. It was a, a youth um, movement sweeping through the country. Yeah. It's all. It did feed into the way they played as well. And, Absolutely. I mean, David Winner's book, uh, Beautiful, uh, Brilliant Orange, which I sort of referenced quite a fair bit in the book. You know, really picks up on that so well. It's one of the sort of differences between his book and mine. But um, yeah, it, it fed into the football. And there's a, there's a, there's a wonderful um, phrase. It's got an economy exactly something along the lines of it meant that in the World Cup final, Hardman Rudd Kroll played the World Cup final wearing love beads. Yeah, that was oh, yeah. Tony Morley was influenced by the short hair and the love beads as well. Everything right, that yeah. they did was just different, wasn't it? Oh, it was. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, uh, just go sort of switching it from from the from the Dutch national team to Ajax, but it's the same thing. When they won the first um, title in '71, when they beat Panathinaikos, if you ever look back and see the video, obviously, what is a lot of times you can imagine yeah. they're all sort of short-haired, but he's sort of smart. By 73, when they play Juve, and they beat Juve, they've all got long hair, yeah. and all shops got that shaggy beard, and they look like hippies. They've all got their love. But just, and that, that was three years between Mikkels. Sort of, Mikkels was, a, a, he used to call him the ball or the general, very sort of disciplinarian. Um, and Kovacs was a bit more easygoing with them, and I think that's fed into the system. It allowed them to be themselves a little bit more. And uh, Jonathan Wilson, uh, his book in Inverted the Pyramid, I think it's Inverted the Pyramid, I might be wrong, but yeah, it's yeah. Inverted the yeah. Pyramid. Yeah. And he said, yeah, he said um, that the Dutch played their best football, so the Ajax played their best football under Kovacs. And and Cruyff agrees. Um, although Mikkels would have built the foundations of the house, all the furniture and all the fittings were put in by, uh, by Kovacs. And the number 14 shirt, that come from Ajax, didn't it? Where um, it did. Jerry, Jerry Muren was, was correct, got yeah. the number nine shirt because Johan was injured. Yeah, Johan uh, uh, got injured in a pre-season yeah. game. I think it was against Bruges, I'm not sure, but a Belgian team anyway. Mm-hmm. And he came back uh, into the team. And although Muren took his... Uh, Dick van Dijk took his place, but Muren had, had the number nine shirt. Muren replied anyway, but they gave him the number nine shirt. And when he came back, Muren tried to give him the shirt back. And I, I, I'm, I'm speaking to a guy called Ork Hock, who's uh, wrote, wrote a biography of Cruyff, who's going to help me with the Ajax book. And 
he's confirmed the story is true. He spoke to Cruyff about it and confirmed the story is true. Basically, Muren tried to give him the shirt back. He said, no, no, I wouldn't take that shirt. You were playing anyway. And he basically dipped his hand into a pile of unclaimed shirts and pulled out 14. And that's where he came from. And in, and in 74, for example, um, the Dutch were numbered alphabetically. Yep. Uh, so one was, you know, I think, oh, I can't remember number one now. I can't remember, but anyway, yeah, yeah, with yeah. the exception, the exception being Cruyff in World 14. Of course, the other thing about Cruyff in 1974, his shirt, was he had one stripe left. Right. On his sleeve, basically. Um, as, it, as it happened, the Dutch had sold sponsorship of the shirt, and they'd never been sponsored before, to Adidas. Right. With, with the famous three stripes. So basically, Cruyff was contracted to Puma. Now, there's... I'd, yeah, Adidas and Puma were run by two brothers, the Dassler yeah, brothers. Absolutely, um, yeah. And there was always this friction. And one of the deal, the, the um, stipulation of Cruyff's contract was he couldn't wear Adidas stuff. So this was a big problem. Um, so if you ever you see a picture of Cruyff in some team out in that 74 tournament, the other players have three stripes on their shirt, Cruyff has two. And that was a deal they came to between Adidas and Puma to allow Cruyff to play. Now, in 1978, um, the Van der twins and Dirk de Ninka were also contracted to Puma, and they also had two stripes on their shirts to everybody else's three. Well, those weird things, yeah, yeah. Cruyff said that um, he was angry with, with the amount um, that the KNVB about the decision, and they said, well, it's our shirt. We'll do what we want. And Cruyff said, it might be your shirt, but it's my head that's sticking to the top of it. <laughs> and, and typical Cruyff, he won the argument. But you wouldn't argue against Johan Cruyff, because when you look at football and you look at, you know, through the ages, Johan Cruyff has got to be up there in, I don't know, what would you put him in the top three of all time? Well, I'll tell you what, Paul, I've seen, in my lifetime, I've seen some of the best players in, of all time I've seen. Mm best. I've seen Ronaldo, both versions of Ronaldo. I've seen Messi, Charlton. I haven't seen Pelé in real life. Mm. Cruyff's the best player I've ever seen in real life. I mean, just just for sheer aura about him, the sheer majesty about him. I mean, Messi's talented massively. You know, Ronaldinho, Ronaldinho's a showman when he was playing for Barca. Yeah. Um, but Cruyff had that, I don't know, I don't know. He's just a natural, natural leader. Natural leader. It's in, just, uh, uh, in 1978, when Cruyff wasn't there, and Van Hanneken wouldn't go either. Right. Van Hanneken wouldn't go because um, basically in 1974, the, all the sponsorship money that the, the team earned, regardless of who earned it, Cruyff obviously earned the most, was all got bent into a pot. It was shared equally between all the players and all the backroom staff, the boot cleaners, and everybody in equal share. Yeah. In 78, some of the players didn't want to do that. They wanted to keep their own money. And Van Hannigan fell out over it. Mm. And, he, he, and he said well, he said to Ernest Happel, now he played under Happel at um, Feyenoord when they won the European Cup. And I was going on with Happel, and Happel thought, you know, he was an important player, but he refused to go because of that. But because Van Hannigan wasn't there and Cruyff wasn't there, um, Jan Vartkreis, who was one of the, almost the joint coaches of the Dutch team, wanted Rensenbrink because when there's no Cruyff you've got two choices yeah. you either play somebody else in the Cruyff role or you play differently yeah. and uh, basically um, Spot Cruyff wanted Rensenbrink to play in the Cruyff role and he thought he could do it and he, he, perhaps he could but he hadn't got that 
that leadership demand. He hadn't got that, you know, Cruyff wanted to be the leader because he knew he could do it well. That was his role. That's what he did. Renshambrick was a lot more um, diffident, perhaps, you know, and less, less sort of arrogant, shall we say. And he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't convinced he could do it. And in the end, they ditched the idea. But for, that was that was one of the plans for to replace Cruyff by using Renshambrick in the same role. Well, when you're talking about Johan Cruyff, um, he's Alan Hudson's favourite player as well. Um, oh, he played against. Oh, a good choice. Yeah, Udi played against Chelsea. Played against Ajax in the uh, the early seventies when I think it well it would have been it was after the uh, the FA Cup final of uh, of nineteen seventy. He just come yeah. back from injury and they'd been over in Sweden. They'd been playing in Sweden and they dropped off in in Holland to play. And he said to me, he said, Paul, we played this team called Ajax. We didn't know much about them at the time. (laughs) And we were playing, and and I looked on it. He said, I saw this fellow with number 14 on his back, and I thought, what's he wearing the number 14 shirt for? And he said, when we finished playing, I thought, that fella can wear any number he likes. And I said to Alan, did you ever find out, Al, why he wore the number 14 shirt? He said, I played twice against him in America. He said, I'll be honest, Paul. I never got close to him. Alan Hudson (laughs) says to me, you have to be on a pitch to understand how fantastic Johan Cruyff was. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine, yeah, I could imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know, and let's face it, Alan Hudson won about players. No, he he was quality. He was pretty talented anyway, so he could do, it was a fair assessment to be says that, oh, that'll do for me. And when's the Ajax book coming out? How far down the line have you got with it? Well, the 14th of June yeah. um, is the official publication date. Now, it has been available on Amazon and Waterstones for a while, but apparently Amazon, Amazon have sold out of their pre-order yeah. um, and have, have been for two or three weeks, although from what I understand from the publishers, and this is one of these things that, you know, believe me or not, apparently is true. One of the reasons that they have been able to restock is the, the, the ship that's bringing them across was stuck in behind that, I mean, both they got blocked in the Suez Canal. <laughs> so this is a reason Amazon haven't been able to restock, uh, apparently. Um, so the story goes. But um, you can still order from Waterstones. You can still uh, um, pre-order from WH Smith. Um, but it's 14th of June is the official publication date. And it's been published by Pitch, isn't it? It is indeed. And uh, pitchpublishing.co.uk forward slash shop forward slash beautiful. You've got it, matey. Uh, alternatively, if anybody wants to uh, pop onto Twitter, my uh, my um, uh, uh, account for this book is called Aft Bridesmaids Inn, and and the header of there is the link to the uh, pitch shop as well, um, which gives you all the details and where to get it from. But, um, but yeah, yeah, um, please go out and buy my book, please, people. Anybody listening? Thank you. Good Absolutely, morning. I can't wait. <laughs> I mean, I have got Brilliant Orange by uh, David Winner. I mean, oh, there's uh, it looks like AstroTurf. And a picture of Edam cheese on the front. It does. It does. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's a brilliant book. And David, um, I did speak to David actually. Um, his book delves far more into the culture of uh, yes, of, you know, of the Netherlands than, than, than mine does. Mine's would have been much concentrated on the game itself, and you know the reasons why they didn't win the different tournaments. But uh, it is a great book, and I, I, I quoted quite a lot in my book. Now, other books that are available from players, I noted that. Van Hannigan's got a book out, but it's in Dutch. Is there yes. a translation in English, or will there be a translation in English? Because I think going forward, the more people that listen to podcasts like yours, 
like the lab, like these footballing times, and the books yep. that you're writing, the books that Stuart's writing, Stuart Horsfield, the books that Stephen yep. Scrag is writing as well. People yep. look at, we can look at YouTube, and we want, we realise how wonderful these players are. You know, the new kids that didn't live through those times, and these players have almost got a new life. So there, there's a market for an English version of books written by the likes of Van Anigan. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And it's strange enough that, you know, it's almost like, you, you know, it's like a second life. It is. You know, because people can go back. I mean, you know, in the sort of 80s, these were people in the past and we were probably as distant as French Puskas. Yeah. You know, and Hidaguti and, you know, Tommy Lawton, um, Stanley Matthews. But there's got a second life now because of YouTube. You can go back and look at these things. And um, I mentioned Hawk Hock earlier. He's just published a book, uh, a, a biography of Cruyff, which has literally just been translated into Spanish. And I spoke to him uh, was last week, last week, week before, and he reckons that will be translated into English in the autumn. And I'm definitely, I'm definitely buying that. That'll be, that'll be a great book. But you, you're right. Um, Vin's got a book out, Vin Van Hannigan, and I think there's one coming out about Rensenbrink as well. Because um, obviously we're at the stage now where these players are played in the sort of you know the 70s. A lot of them have passed on now. I mean, yeah. we lost Rensenbrink and. Uh, Pete Kaiser, um, not so long ago as well. Um, Cruyff obviously is gone. Um, it's not, you know, they're sort of going. I mean, it's, 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 it's the sad thing about footballs when you go. You know, you, I remember the day when Ozzy died. Peter was good. Yeah. Um, your hero should never be allowed to die. That's not fair. That's not how it should happen. You know, it's, it's not fair. Um, but but yeah, there are there are a lot of books coming out and Dutch about Dutch football, and uh, a lot of them are in Dutch. But there's a big. I mean. In, if you speak to anybody, almost anybody in Dutch, I spoke to a lot of them over the last sort of 12 months, 18 months or so. English is almost the, uh, the second language there anyway, so most people speak English, and uh, all the guys I spoke to there, and all cocky is definitely going to translate his into English, which which will be a must buy, a must buy, because he's the, he wrote a book um, in the, after the 74 final. The Dutch have always held this thing that the Germans cheated because the Schwalbe. They cheated anyway, and basically, uh, there's lots of things happened as well before the game. And uh, I think it was built the German newspaper. One of the German newspapers was going on a story about the Dutch cavorting with girls yes. um, around the time of the Brazil game. And whether it was true, I don't know. There's supposed to be pictures, but they never came out. Mm. And um, uh, Jan Herman von Boyner, who was mentioned earlier, told me that you know apparently. It was common knowledge in Holland at the time that basically Cruyff's wife, uh, Danny, um, was hardly speaking to him. There's a word, I can't remember the, the Dutch word is, but it, it's, it's, uh, it's in, in hard trouble. It means, yeah. In hard trouble, it means, with his wife over. But whether it's true or not, but there's a lot of things going on along those sort of things, um, which is what, which, you know, was just reinforcing that um, hatred for the strong word, but that dislike of the Germans already. Absolutely. And going forward, are you going to be doing any podcasts with any of these Dutch masters? Van Hannigan, for instance. I'd love to. I'd love, I mean, I mean, I, it's difficult to get. I mean, these guys are quite old now. I mean, Van Hannigan must be so. He's thirty-two in seventy-eight. So twenty. I mean, he must be stuck on seventy now. Yeah, so yeah. he's probably a bit, a bit past the time. Um, probably the nearest I've got was when um, Stu Stu Horsman you mentioned earlier managed to get because uh, he wrote a book on. Brazil 82. I've got that. Um, and, oh, it's brilliant, brilliant. Um, I got in touch with Abraham Klein, and Abraham Klein came on a podcast with us. 
um, probably 12 months ago and I used a lot of he was kind enough to give me an interview to, uh, so I could use as well but that's probably the, the, the problem is as I say it's so long ago now so it's probably we probably missed the mark with them mm. um, we've got a few ex-players coming on I think we've got, a, we've got Ricky Hill coming on not too distant future yeah he's got a book and, out as uh, well isn't he Ricky yeah I'm doing a, a pod with um, Steve Hunt oh right uh, good book yeah I'm with the Cosmos yeah. I'm with the Cosmos next week with, uh, I think it's me, Stuart, and Steve doing that. Uh, um, yeah, me, and Steve doing that. Because he played, I mean, obviously played for a lot of clubs in the middle, he's played for, um, Villa. for yeah. Villa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and that's a good book as well, really good book. It's one of those things where, you know, you read the book and you think, you oh, know, I'll just have another, bring another couple of pages and now it's gone. You know, it's a, but that's, that's a cracking book as well. Does Shinaglia get much of a mention in that? Does what, sorry? G- Giorgio, Giorgio Shinaglia. Yes, he does. Oh, he does, yeah. Oh, he's a character, I've got his book as well, I've had a dirty one, so that's, that's, a, that's an interesting book. And yeah, I Steve mentioned a lot about Ginaglia. Um, uh, interesting character, interesting character. And he says he's a great goal scorer, but he would shoot from anywhere, and he used, he used to rag people off because he'd shoot from anywhere. Just It was, it was more important that he scored a goal than anybody else scored a goal. As, as Steve is very much more of a, you know, I'm happy to, to assist for a goal, but Ginaglia, he wanted the glory himself. Oh, he thought he was a godfather, didn't he? Oh, yeah, oh, oh, there's some, yeah, there's some, there's some hints of things in the, in the book, yeah. But yeah, he just mentioned England and, and uh, Pelé, of course, he played with Pelé towards the end of his career, George Best, Carlos Alberto. Um, yeah, this guy played with some of the greatest names in world football. It's incredible that NASL, how many names went over there, because of course, Johan did, a lot of the Dutch masters yeah. did as well. It was, you know, one yeah. of the greatest leagues on the planet. It was one stage. And I was talking to. Oh, I don't know if you if you if you know of Ray Hudson. Yeah, what a player he was. What he tells me about him. Well, Great yeah. player. Was in Newcastle when well, he was a kid. He was in Newcastle, but he went over to America. And I, yeah. A nice guy. And I, I I had an interview with Ray, which was really helpful because he played um, uh, in America with Van Beveren, with Jan Van Beveren. Okay. And he gave me a lot of background details about Van Beveren, and, and he was saying that when he played, um, when Jan played with against Cruyff or Kroll or Rensbrinker, they all went over there for a while. Um, there was always a tension between him and the other players. Um, there was a, a famous incident, or say famous, almost infamous incident in, uh, before the 1978 European Championships, and he was back in favour. Um, this was when uh, Noble, the guy who had gone to Ajax for one season and lost the European Cup. I mean, the, the first time they lost the European Cup going in four years. Uh, and then he got he, he got the sack at the end of the season. He got the Dutch national job. <laughs> but this is I mean this is this is how it works in Holland. I mean just a couple of examples. Um, before Roy Cart got the job as Dutch manager, he had one season managing a club with Sparta Rotterdam and got relegated. He got relegated and got the Dutch national job. Marco van Basten before he got the Dutch national job had had one season coaching the Ajax. Youth team. Mm. This is this is how it works. But anyway, so go back to um, 1978, um, and Vian Beveren. Um, there's a few other PSV players coming to the the um, um, of teams, of course, and Kleiman. And um, basically, at this stage, Noble was a bit weak as a manager, and Cruyff used to sort of get away with murder, as it were. Yeah. And apparently. Uh, he was given, Cruyff and Niskins were given extra time to some training because they had to come from Spain rather than just, you know, from different parts of Holland. But apparently it turned into Cruyff took advantage and on one occasion he even took his wife shoe shopping in Milan when he should have been in training. And one day, Cruyff and Niskins turned up late for his training and 
it's whether it was Van Beveren, but it's been a, 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 given that it was him, said, "Here come the kings of Spain." <laughs> now, Cruyff either heard it or was told about it, and basically, if you take to, to Noble, it's them, it's it's him or us. Yeah. Now, who's he has, he's going to back Cruyff? So basically, Van Beveren who missed out in '74 because he fell out with Mickles, missed out in '78 because of Cruyff and. This is a killer. In 1978, um, they appointed Happel, but Happel didn't take over the team until they actually reached Argentina. The qualification process was run by a guy called Jan Vartkreis. And Jan Vartkreis was, uh, was, uh, was actually an Air Force captain in the Dutch Air Force, but he basically ran the Dutch military team. Conscription was obligatory at this time. And quite a few Dutch players, international players, played on the Swartkreis, of which one was Van Beveren. So they wanted, basically, Zweikos wanted Van Beveren back into the team because he was the best goalkeeper by a country mile. Yeah. By a country mile. Um, anyway, so basically, he tried to get him back in. Cruyff still played the time, even though Cruyff didn't go to the World Cup in 78 at the end. And Cruyff didn't want Van Beveren to play it. And he got to the stage where what was happening, Zweikos was, was hoping that time would heal the situation. He was selecting Van Beveren to the squad, but leaving him on the bench. And he, I think he played one game. Um, but then, basically, Van Bremen got fed up and said, oh, I don't want to go. If you're, not going to, if you're not going to pick me, I'm not going to go anyway. Of course, he dropped out then, retired from international port. He actually went to America to play, to play with the, the time team as Ray Hudson played. And um, so he missed out of the World Cup. And of course, in the end, Cruyff didn't go, so he could have gone. So basically, Van Bremen, the Dutch, best Dutch goalkeeper over a decade, missed the 74 World Cup, which is the 76 European Championships and the 78 World Cup. None of them for, for reasons of form or ability. Oh, if only he would have said, here comes the two kings of Catalonia. Well, perhaps he might, <laughs> perhaps he might have got a d- different response, but, you know, I mean, it's, as I say, this is such football. If there ain't an argument going on, you know, things run smoothly. Someone's got to turn the table over. Oh, incredible. Like a dysfunctional family, but absolutely a top-class family. And the, the Ajax book... How far down the line are you with that book? That's going to be a must for me well, to get in my library as well. Well, I haven't even started yet, to be honest yeah. with you, Paul. Um, basically, it'll be out in uh, cause 20, May 2023 yep. will be the 50th anniversary of the third trial. That's why it's still targeting that. And um, uh, I'm, I'm sort of working at the moment and, until probably September time on the sequel to my novel. And then I've got the Chelsea book uh, in 2022, which is the 10th anniversary of the, uh, the 2012 World Cup, uh, sorry, 2012 uh, Champions League um, triumph. So it'll be, I'll be sort of starting work on the Ajax book probably, I don't know, just after Christmas, perhaps this year, um, Christmas this year, so that'll give me sort of like 12 months to work on it, it'll be coming out in May 2023. How long does it take you ordinarily to just write a, a book? Uh, I guess, I mean, it's quite about how long is a piece of string. Yeah, yeah, as far as, yeah. The reason I say that is there's things that you're interested in, you know a bit about. Absolutely, yeah. Take, take a less time of things you've got to research from scratch. Like mm. I, one of my earlier books was the, I just wrote a history of England and the World Cup. And that took me three years. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's, it's a lot, a lot of ground to cover. But normally, I, I guess, I, I normally sort of I, I, I schedule 12 months. Can I wish you all the very best with your books and your podcasts and wish all the guys at Pitch Publishing, The Lob, and these football times all the very best. And thank you for educating me, sir. Oh, bless you for that, mate. And you keep up the work at your end as well, because I like to listen to your pods as well, mate. So 
Right back at you, buddy. So, man, until next time, thank you, Gaz. All right, cheers, Paul. The best, mate. Enjoy Spain. Thank you. Ta-ra, pal. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Cheers. Ta-ra, <laughs>